They are guides, all guides, and in unexpected places. You'll meet their friendly faces, and a ready hand besides. There's not much danger of finding you're a stranger for a commissioner or ranger. They are guides, all guides. Hi, and welcome to Guides Out, the unofficial guiding podcast where we talk about everything guiding. I'm Taryn. And I'm Marissa. In celebration of World Thinking Day on Monday, Taryn and I will explore Crystal Palace from its conception, the rebuild, and eventual destruction. This unique building holds a lot of significance for Girl Guides and Girl Scouts everywhere. Speaking of significant Girl Guide symbols, we'll also take a look to the life of someone very special to guides everywhere. Agnes Baden-Powell. Agnes came from a large family, but that didn't slow her down on her way to becoming the leader of what is now the largest voluntary organization for girls and women in the world. And we'll round out our celebrations with a song dedicated to sharing our values as girl guides, the Guide Law Song. You may recognize it if you are ever a guide in Canada. Um, It's also a great way to memorize the guiding law. Um... Before we get into all of that, I want to let you know that this episode will be another two-parter, just like the Girl Scouts one. While doing our research, we found a lot of in- interesting information on Crystal Palace and Agnes Aiden Powell, and we didn't want to cut too much of it away. So you can look forward to part two next week, which will be on Agnes and our campfire song. In the meantime, let's go all the way to Crystal Palace. Yeah, so Crystal Palace is such an interesting building. Um, that unfortunately no longer exists, but holds quite significant meaning to girl guides. Um, So going into the research, all I knew was that it was a building, a place where girl guides had met, um, and I didn't know anything else. So I learned a lot doing it, and I want to share a lot of its history because it's very unique and interesting. And because it's where the girl guide movement really started, I felt that it was significant enough that we should we should learn about it and mm-hmm. we don't learn about it in girl guides like I don't think anyone ever talks about what Crystal Palace actually was was and what it was built for yeah beyond the valley I don't know much about it other than it is like now a soccer team or something I don't know yeah don't every time soccer. you every time you search Crystal Palace the the soccer team comes up first um but uh, we'll get to that later. Okay. Um, so we'll start off when um, it's sort of the idea of Crystal Palace became a thing. So it's all the way back in the late 1840s. And it um, was created when Prince Albert had the idea of holding an international exhibition in London. And he wanted to do so to celebrate and encourage manufacturing and design. Um, And it was going to be called the Great Exhibition of 1851. Not super creative, um, that's (laughs) what it was called. (laughs) Um, And the structure was amazing. Um, Just looking back at all the photos and the descriptions, it's incredible for its time. So it was, as you would imagine, a Crystal Palace. It was a giant glass and iron exhibition hall located in Hyde Park in London. And it was designed by a man named Sir Joseph Paxton. And he had designed it and it consisted of a very intricate network of slender iron rods that would sustain walls of clear glass. And it ended up taking four months to build, which 
actually, I think is pretty quick um, in terms of building a glass structure. Like I'd imagine yeah. super careful putting something like that together. I wonder how much of that was putting together all the iron work and then mm-hmm. how much of that was putting in the glass. Um, yeah. They also built things faster way back when um, <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know if it's like we have regulation or less safety standards, but yeah. Yeah, who knows? It's it's funny. We think that technology's made things faster, but then like it feels like it takes forever to build things still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so some quick little stats about the building. So the main body of it was 563 meters long, which they equate to 51 London buses the red London buses Um, and it was 124 meters wide and the height at the very central transept. So the tallest part of it was 33 meters tall. Um, So if you massive, it is. So reading that at first, I was like, I have no idea what that looks like. So then I looked up pictures and I was like, Whoa, it is huge. Um, And on the ground floor, um, the galleries and all of that included were more than 13 kilometers um, worth of display tables. So it is not a small space. It is quite large or was quite large. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was, in fact, the largest structure on Earth. Um, and it was also meant to be intentionally elaborate and very showy because um, of the reason for its existence. It was there for an exhibition. And it pretty much became famous immediately um, as soon as it was, you know, constructed. Um, there was sort of a love-hate relationship with it. Some mm-hmm. people loved it. Some people hated it. Um, but it became famous either way. Um So the whole purpose of the exhibition, like I said, it was to bring together manufacturers, designers, scientists, engineers, and artisans from around the world. And there ended up being over 14,000 exhibitors that participated. um, And nearly half of them were not British. So some countries included were France. They sent over 1,760 exhibits. And the United States sent 560. And um, some of the American exhibits included things like false teeth, artificial legs, something called the Colts Repeating Pistol, um, Goodyear India Rubber Goods, Chewing Tobacco, and McCormick's Reaper. Some of the popular British exhibits included things like the hydraulic presses, powerful steam engines, pumps, and automated cotton mules, which were spinning machines. Um, So you can see the interesting contrast between what American exhibits had and what British had. So the British had this manufacturing goods and like machines, uh, which makes sense because, I mean, Americans probably couldn't transport that kind of thing across the (laughs) sea as easily. Um, And so like the Americans brought a much smaller things, like smaller goods that were still unique, but um, probably easier to transport. Yeah. Um, In the end, the exhibit, it ran, um, well, it was open to the public, I should say from May 1st, 1851 until October 11, um, which was about six months long. 
And over that time, there was more than 6 million visitors that attended. Wow. And it showed a very significant profit of 186,447 pounds, which is now estimated to be about 15 million pounds in profit, which is significant. Not too bad. Not too bad for an exhibition in 1851. Um, also, considering like how transportation was not, you know, like worldwide transportation was not as big yet. Um, yeah. It's not like you could fly a plane, um, <laughs> take, a, take a commercial airliner over. Um, so significant. Um, the big thing of note is that admission was only five shillings, which was considered to be quite cheap at the time um, and made it so that a lot of just ordinary people could visit the exhibition and get in. Um, there was a note about how a woman from a town quite far away um, who was, um, you know, an older lady and wasn't very well off. Um, she was still able to make it. She walked, you know, the however many kilometers it was over and um, made it in. So it was very much accessible to everyone who mm-hmm. lived in the um, in the in the country of England, at least. Um, so that was sort of a great thing about it. Um, overall. Crystal Palace basically established an architectural standard for international fairs and exhibitions in the future. And they were likewise housed in glass conservatories, which basically look like giant greenhouses from the outside. Um, So some of the ones that look similar were the ones in Dublin and New York City, the exhibitions of 1853, um, the Munich exhibit exhibition of 1854 and the Paris exposition of 1855. So the preceding ones after um, were built very similarly. Um, So after the exhibition of 1851, um, Crystal Palace for a number of years was the site of many shows, other exhibitions, um, concerts, football matches or soccer matches as we call them, um, and other forms of entertainment. Um, and it was actually moved. It was taken down and then rebuilt um, at Sidon, Sidonham Hill, which is now known as the outer borough of Bromley in southeast London. So um, for those of you who live there or have been there, that will give you some context. So it moved from Hyde Park to southeast London. Um, on... Oh, hold on. By the turn of the century, the palace was losing money. So by the 19th century, it's been around for over 50 years. It had started to lose money and had declared bankruptcy in 1911, um, which is sort of sad. Um, It was, you know, a great attraction, but um, it went downhill. Um, Unfortunately, on the night of November 30th and into December 1st of 1936, the structure was destroyed by a fire. Um, They had had the efforts of 381 firemen who had 89 engines, um, but they were not enough to stop the blaze. Um, whether it was arson or accident, they didn't know, but it destroyed the building beyond saving as it was just glass and iron. There wasn't much holding it up. Um, the towers, um, there were towers that were added once it was moved to Sydenham Hill. 
Um, they were erected then, later. Um, those actually did survive the fire because they were sort of separate. If you look at photos, they're like on either end and they're separate from the main building, but they're sort of supposed to be complementary. Um, so those were still standing um, until, of course, the Second World War came around and they ended up being demolished on purpose because they were deemed as a conspicuous landmark for incoming German bombers. So they didn't want to attract the attention of the enemy. So they took them down on purpose, which is sort of sad because they were the last thing that was still surviving of the building and they had to yeah. get rid of it. Makes sense. You want you don't want that um, significant landmark during the raids, uh, but it is a shame to lose um, a building that sounds like it was marvelous. So it was, um, and actually, I will share because I decided to take a look at this. Um, they do have a interactive. Um, tour of the building that you can take. So they basically reconstructed it digitally from what they know of the structure and the architectural designs. So thankfully architects like write things down on paper and make things very detailed. Yeah. So it was easy to recreate it digitally. Um, and it's a very cool like 360 immersive experience. You can like go inside the building, see what it would have looked like. Um, and then there's like this really cool toggle that you can turn on to show present day what it looks like in Crystal Palace Park versus what it looked like, what it would have looked like then. Um, so I encourage you to check that out. Um, very cool. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was a big building and it was, you know, a sad loss. Um, there are were very few traces that remained. And as of today, it's very um, much non-existent the only things that still are there are a few stairwells that were guarded by old sphinx structures and there are some foundation stones but other than that that's pretty much it um and like i said thanks to modern technology you can take the virtual tour um it's called if you just search it in google it's called the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations and it should give you like an i uh, an a link that you can go to in your Google search um, to see it. It um, it very much gives you a better understanding of the scale of this building. Um, and it also includes some really cool facts about the building and the exhibition itself. Um, it was created using CGI and 360 photography, which, like I said, overlays like very much the historic drawings of the building on the present day site. So if you like history and you like looking at buildings and want to get the context for like this giant structure, I would highly recommend looking at that. I'm definitely going to take a look at that later. That sounds really cool. It, yeah, it really is. Um, but before the fire, we'll go back to 1909, set the stage. So um, it was pretty much, you know, getting to the brink of, like I said, bankruptcy. Um, it wasn't really, you know, earning any income or profit of any sort. Um, but people still gathered there and the structure was still there. And one of the biggest gatherings that we all know of, of course, is of the Crystal Palace Scout Rally that happened that year. So it was a gathering of the Boy Scouts as well as some Girl Scouts. Um, and the date of that was Saturday, September 4th, 4th 1909. 
Um, an estimated 11,000 boys attended, along with a very prominent presence of Girl Scouts, um, which is, of course, noted to be very significant for us because it was the spark that created the Girl Guide Girl Scout movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so you likely will already know that that part but we're going to dive a little bit deeper into why girl guides found it significant and what the rally was um all about so that rally was held about a year and a half after the publication of scouting for boys which is the the scouting for boys handbook that lord bp wrote as well as the scout magazine um the rally was also held two years after Robert Baden Powell's demonstration at Brown Sea Island Scout Camp, which many of us know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Boy Scout rally included things like displays as well as contests, a march by of all of the scouts, as well as an inspection of the troops by the chief scout himself, of course, Lord VP. Um the rally is also sort of known to be the v- precursor to the later Scout Jamborees and World Scout Jamborees. So if you've ever gone to a Scout or World Scout Jamboree, this is basically what started that sort of theme of events. Um, and that's where they got their structure going forward. So if you can imagine what the World Scout Jamboree looks like, it's pretty much what this rally was, only it was just the day long, as opposed to a couple of weeks long. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, at the Crystal Palace rally, the concept um, also of a scout zone or a guide zone was introduced. So um, basically, we owe our namesake of this podcast to this rally because that's where yeah. the, the scout zone came from, which in turn ended up turning into a guide zone as well. Um, and it was introduced by a name um, by name by a man <laughs> <laughs> named Henry Jeffrey. Ellis, um, and it was known as a very simple, non-denominational religious ceremony, um, which is very much similar to how it is now, but of course there's no religion involved. It is just like a peaceful closing after an event and reflection time. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of like, I think we've mentioned this already, like it's a very peaceful version of a campfire. Um, Songs are often sung, poems are often read, um, readings as well, and very very nice way to wrap things up yeah um so yeah that's where that started that man introduced that at the rally um there was also a member of the royal family in attendance at this rally princess christian um i'm not really sure who she was but she was there um and members of the local scout troop known as the second croydon Um, formed part of the flag party for her attendance. Um, They, that scout troop is also known as the first Crystal Palace Patrol, um, of course, after the rally. Um, And as a result, the group, which is still in existence today, has the right to call themselves Princess Christian's Own. Um, Which has, I would imagine, some significance, maybe something that we can't fully understand here. But I'm sure in England that probably means a great deal. Yeah. And um, the group still meets near Crystal Palace Park. And they regularly use Crystal Palace Park for their scouting activities, which is 
really cool. Um, it now makes me really want to visit Crystal Palace Park. And, um, oh, man, if I ever get back there into London, I want that to be, like, one of the stops I make. Yeah, there's um, definitely over the last year doing this podcast has added a number of places I want to stop and go see in London and surrounding areas. And this is just another place on that very quickly growing list. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I think I never realized what Crystal Palace was. And um, I think I just thought that Crystal Palace was a concept and not actually, it was not actually ever a building because it just seemed too fantastical to me, like a, a Crystal Palace. But um, it very much was a real building. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't exist today, but the fact that they met there is really cool. If you want to get like the full effect of it too, you could also visit Hyde Park to see like where the building once was. But the guides and scouts or the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts first did meet at its second location, mm-hmm. um, so which is now known as Crystal Palace Park. So if you just search that, I'm sure you would have no trouble finding it and walking around the area. Um, be really cool to do. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, many of these Girl Scouts um, were in attendance um, very much of their own accord. They were not invited um, by Robert Bean Powell or the Boy Scouts. Um, but several hundred of them attended. This wasn't just a small group, it was several hundred of them. And they included a group um, under a patrol leader named Marguerite de Beaumont. Um, Marguerite attended with her younger sister, Elizabeth, as well as two other women um, named Nesta Maud and Rosa Lintorn Orma. Um, And together, um, a few years, uh, actually just a year prior to this rally, they had registered themselves as a scout troop, and they used their initials rather than their forenames to create the group because I'd imagine they were worried that they wouldn't be allowed to form the troop. So they were creative and just used initials to name their troop and record their existence, and were able to, to form, right, and gather some interest. Um, they came dressed in the Girl Scout uniform as given in the Scout Handbook, and they were officially registered as Girl Scouts. Um, so they basically just used the uniform that was in the in the Boy Scout Handbook and, you know, made it a girl version. And, um, yeah, by the end of the March by that was being held at the rally, um, the last Scout Patrol in the group of 11,000 consisted of nine girls who were wearing Stetsons and carrying scout staves and Lord BP of course noticed them. Um, It was hard not to in this massive crowd of boys and all of a sudden you see these girls walking by. Um, So when he saw them, he approached the girls and he asked them who they were and they replied that we're the Girl Scouts to which he said, you can't be, there aren't any Girl Scouts. Uh Funny. I would imagine to see him in person. Um, yeah. And one of the girls in the group, who was 16-year-old Nesta, um, retorted quite swiftly that, oh, yes, there are, because we're them. Um, so this was the wolf patrol that was led by Marguerite um, as their patrol leader and her younger sister, Elizabeth. Um, I would be so scared to 
talk back to somebody like Lord Baden Powell when I was 16 like that. Like I'd be petrified. <laughs> um so yeah. good on her for like and that's today when some like speaking out to someone like that wouldn't be all that frowned upon, but like over a hundred years ago that um <laughs> definitely would have raised a number of eyebrows. Yeah, yeah. I think um, he took it pretty well considering um, that a movement was born out of it and he very much wanted it to happen for them. Yeah. Um, So it must have worked somehow. Um, And yeah, so from that moment on, um, the guiding movement as we know it was um, built and Marguerite went on to become a scoutmaster as well as a girl guide commissioner and close personal friends with the Baden-Powell family. Um, so Nesta must not have, you know, put too much of a bad impression on the troop um, that Marguerite became quite close with um, Robert Baden-Powell as well as his sister mm-hmm. and his, um, later his wife, Olaf. Um, so yeah, she's, uh, she got quite close and she was so close in fact that she was the author of one of the best known biographies of Lord Baden-Powell. So she wrote about his life. So yeah, I would say they got quite close um, if she knew enough. Um, Some of the other attendees who were at that rally in 1909, who would later influence girl guiding and girl scouting um, was, as I mentioned, Nesta Maud, who was um, married and then known as Nesta Ashworth. She became very instrumental in the setup of loan guides. So what we have here, the loans units, um, where they don't meet as often and they often get into a lot of the outdoorsy stuff and go do a lot of hikes, a lot of camps, a lot of like sort of exposition type activities uh, where they're more out in nature. Um, Canoe trips would be included in that as well. So that was all her. Um, there was also, uh, Rotha Lintorn Orman. Um, she was the third founding member of the Wolf Patrol and a, another lady by the name of Nella Levy, um, became the pioneer of guiding in Australia. So yeah, some, some exciting founding members came from that rally and they made a, a lot of historical significance in the movement later. Um, In addition to those individuals, there were also a couple groups of girls there, um, one calling themselves the Pinkney's Green Scouts, as well as two representatives from the Girls Emergency Corps. Um, And these three small groups of girls at the Crystal Palace rally are often cited as the origin of the Girl Guide movement. So there's just several small groups that were there that basically all started this movement and you can credit all of them basically for um, spreading that around the world, which is uh, pretty darn cool. Yeah, and um, um, into Agnes Baden-Powell, it came up that there is like a couple hundred girls who showed up to the rally. didn't really talk about how they got in, but it seemed like it was very much the same kind of idea that um, that Wolf Patrol had um, 
Marguerite and her sister and friends. So in addition to those individual women who were at the rally, there was also a group of girls there, one of which um, called themselves the Pinkney's Green Scouts. And then there were two other group representatives from the Girls Emergency Corps. And um, these three small groups of girls at the Crystal Palace rally are often cited as the origin of the Girl Guide movement. So we can thank these groups rather than like one particular group um, for the spread of the movement um, around the world. Um, yeah, we owe a lot, a lot to those small little groups of girls. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think you said you had something to mention. About. Yeah, um, it kind of leads into your next point about how in my research, um, the number of girls who showed up to Crystal Palace surprised me. Like, I don't know about you, but I was always taught, or at least led to believe, that it was, like, you know, under 100 girls who showed up. It was, you know, like, 9 or 10 really rambunctious girls who snuck in. <laughs> um, and then a couple others who, like, tagged along in their brother's units. But uh, in my research, and as you have pointed out, um, there was, you know, a couple hundred, if not like a thousand girls who showed up to this rally. Like, you would think that, you know, in all the years we've been taught about Crystal Palace um, and this rally that, you know, the number would have come up at least more than once. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think, too, I just didn't realize the scale of the event anyways at all. Like, 11,000 scouts, that's a lot. That's a pretty big number. Yeah. Um, Like, I have trouble comprehending that much. I know our local um, hockey team um, in Kitchener, their arena can hold just over 7,000, and that's a lot of people. Um, I've been to several games there and, um, I can't imagine like 11,000, um, that's a lot of people. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I think, I think it was downplayed maybe a little bit when we heard about it for the first time as girls. If, you know, they're saying that there might've been several thousand and there was 11,000 people showed up, that's like 10%. Like that's not insignificant. Which Uh is probably why we they, I should say, were so successful in getting it moving. It wasn't like a brush off. It was like, no, there's actually like a significant amount of them who are interested. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, Lord Baden-Powell was, you know, able to discern quite clearly just how many girls were interested. And um, there was actually a contingent, again, another group of girls from Peckham Rye, who spoke to Baden-Powell at the rally, and um, they must have had, you know, even more impact on his decision because um, he went on to create a very similar but separate program for girls um, in December 1909. So that very same year, just at the end of it, really. So that's what we all know, of course. Um, had some sprinkled in some details there so that you got more context for it, of course. Um And interestingly enough, the media coverage of the rally, along with the coverage that was in the Spectator magazine, which was issued in October um, to December 1909, um, led to forming 
led to the formal founding in 1910 of Girl Guides under his sister, like we um, all know, um, Agnes Baden-Powell. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the media did play a big role in that as well. And I think that's not mentioned. But, um, of course, at the time, media wasn't huge. So all it was was a magazine. But that's what people read and that's what people mm-hmm. held on to. Um, if anyone's ever seen um, Bridgerton, I'm sure many of you have, like, these gossip things, magazines, you know, papers are what people um, love and it's what spreads the news very, very quickly. So um, not surprising that they um, documented the rally and the the news and the forming of the Girl Guides yeah. um, spread just like it. Well, they didn't have Twitter or Facebook <laughs> or social media back then. So, uh, no, you know, he needed- this was it old school ways to spread and start movements. Yeah, um, and uh, it worked. Definitely. Um, so another thing to note also about times of 1909, um, in those days for girls to camp and hike was not common at all. Um, and it is extracted from the Scout News paper as um, a quote that says if a girl is not allowed to run or even hurry to swim ride a bike or raise her arms above her head how can she become a scout so basically they were saying if girls aren't allowed to do these things in society anyway then like why why would she be able to become a scout then like she can't do all these things that scouts do so yeah um but you know that was um very much fought against um, by the girls and women and um there's a funny note too about that is that even though they weren't allowed to do all those things, um, many girls in that day, um, as well as young women, belonged to bicycle clubs. <laughs> so it's like I think they, they knew how to maintain a bicycle and knew how to take care of it and all that, and they might have even ridden one, but they weren't allowed to do all the other stuff. It was strange times back then. Yeah. Um, so then I also wanted to give some information about what Crystal Palace is now, how it exists now, even though the building is no longer around. So, of course, as I mentioned, there's Crystal Palace Park, um, and it is home to the Crystal Palace National Sports Center, which was opened in 1964. That includes an athletic stadium, which has been the home ground of the Crystal Palace Football Club, um, which um, was formed in 1906. So they got this new home in 1964. Um, So that's what you see when you search Crystal Palace, the (laughs) football club will come up, um, or as we know, it's soccer. Um, And because they were part of the FA, the FA Cup final was also played in um, that stadium from many of the years between 1895 and 1914. Um, the organization was also formed in 2008, um, the Crystal Palace organization, and is dedicated um, to the efforts of rebuilding a Crystal Palace at about two-thirds the size at um, Sydenham. Um, the new plans um, at the time in 2008 were calling for a building as an homage to the original, but instead of like being an exhibit, Ambitions. Um, it would include things like shops, a hotel, underground parking, and an enormous waterfall, and something referred to as the Hanging Gardens. 
Um, these were all included in some designs that were written up. Um, the grounds um, in these plans would also be updated with sporting fields, RV parking, and other modern attractions. Um, it was unclear at the time whether the plans um, had ever moved beyond a mere suggestion, though. So um, it's not like crystal clear whether those plans were ever going to move on and if they ever reached any form of like government or anything to get approval. Um, so those, it's just like um, some information that I could find um, about an organization that was started. Um, in addition to all that, um, there were a lot of other people who organized some groups um, and ways to commemorate Crystal Palace. So Girl Guiding UK, um, they opened a centenary maze in Crystal Palace Park in September 2009, of course, to celebrate the centenary. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a nice addition. And there was also an article um, written in 2016 that talked about how many of the pieces that were left over had been sort of repaired, including um, a maze that was built in the 1980s. Apparently mazes are popular um as well as the um flights of steps that i mentioned and the sphinx figures um that um were there so those were um sort of repaired and refurbished to sort of look better because there was a bit of vandalism um that they had uh experienced there's some spray paint um involved um so those were restored and then the last one Thing that I found was the Crystal Palace Foundation. It is a charitable organization that is meant to keep the memory alive of the Crystal Palace, as well as its major role um, in the story and the social development of Victorian and Edwardian England, um, both significant time periods. Um, they are also credited for the creation of the Crystal Palace Museum which was first opened on the 17th of June, 1990 by the Duke of Devonshire. Um, and this was opened after 11 years of campaigning by local enthusiasts who had really wanted this sort of museum to open. Mm -hmm. um, so it is in existence today and includes a lot of the sort of figures, um, little sort of mini miniatures of what the Crystal Palace would have looked like, what would have been inside the building, some artifacts that were recovered um, and things that people have donated over the years of what they had from the Great Exhibition of 1851. So that's really cool. Um, I visited their website really quickly and it was noted that they were closed because of COVID, but um, uh, in non-COVID times, once we can look again, um, it's probably a pit stop to make while you're at Crystal Palace Park. Um, something to look into. Yeah. And, um, the Crystal Palace Foundation is internationally recognized as the leading authority on the Crystal Palace. So they are the people you go to if you want to know anything about Crystal Palace. Um, and basically, I would just point you to their website to learn more about the history because there's a lot of it there. And there's even more details about like after the fire and what has happened since. Um, and it includes that 360 virtual tour of the building. Nice. Um, so yeah, that's all in one what Crystal Palace was all about. Yeah, um, so much more history than I knew. And I thought I knew a decent amount about Crystal Palace and the rally going in. It was always one of my favorite <laughs> things to learn about every year. 
um, being a bit of a history nut, I am. I always loved learning about, you know, the early days of guiding. But mm. I feel like a lot of this is left out in our program books. And I think a lot of girls would really enjoy knowing it. Um, but yeah. that's why we started this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I'm, thanks for, you know, diving into that. That was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and we will get into even more absolutely ridiculous under or lesser known guiding history next week in part two. Um, talking about Agnes Baden-Powell. Um, but until then, make sure you subscribe to the podcast or your favorite platform. Um, or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you may listen to your favorite podcasts. Um, And wherever that may be, make sure you give us a five-star rating and a review to let us know that you're listening and enjoying. And you can also follow us on social media. We're at Guides Own. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, You can keep up to date on the latest episodes, any podcast news, and behind-the-scenes bits. And you can also check us out on YouTube. I don't know if that counts as social media, but I always (laughs) include it. So check us out there because we put the episodes up there as well. Yeah. Um, And as we part, we wish you all, our listeners, good guiding. Good guiding.